Welcome to Norse Mythology, the unofficial guide. It's unofficial because I'm neither a credentialed academic nor a time-traveling medieval Norse pagan, but I deal with this material directly from the sources, interpreted through the lens of the experts and their opinions. If you're looking for depth and detail in a simple and accessible way, then you're in the right place. Where through hail humir, i hugum golvum, nu er sonner comin, till salathina so er ritwatum, af wegi longum, filger honum hrothers onskoti, winner verily the weir hater so. This is a particularly interesting stanza from the poem we'll be discussing today, in that it encapsulates a bunch of strange relationships between characters all in one place. It's spoken by a woman who might be either a goddess or a Jotun to her husband, clearly a Jotun, encouraging him to be in a good mood because their son, the god Tyr, has brought his best buddy in this poem, Thor, who is also the most prolific Jotun killer of all time, over for a visit, as if that's somehow going to turn out well for him. Here it is in English, quote, Greetings, Himir. Be of good humor. Now our son has come to your hall, he whom we've expected on his long journeyings. Frode's adversary accompanies him, the friend of warriors, Veyr is his name, end quote. Veyr, in this case, probably means something like a hallower or a shrine guardian. We've talked a lot about variation in myth on this show. Ancient Norse pagans didn't write down their own mythology, so as stories were passed between generations and spread across northern Europe, some minor characters' names were changed, some major characters might have swapped places, repeating themes would have been mixed and matched, and some important plot points were clearly altered. In most cases, we have no idea exactly how stories varied across time and distance, because only one full version ever ended up surviving in written form on into the modern period. But we do have many hints that variation on these stories existed. For example, in the last episode, we noted how the character the prose Edda calls Skrimir is referred to by the name Fjallar in Harbarthsljöth, and in episode 8, we noted some discrepancies in the way Odin's theft of the mead is described between accounts in the prose Edda and in Hovamal. However, these are only hints. Neither Harbarthsljöth nor Hovamal provide full versions of the stories they reference. In that light, variation is perhaps nowhere more apparent than in the story of Thor's fishing trip with Hymir. Not only because two full versions of the story exist from Iceland, but because Snorri actually tells us as part of his own narrative that he is aware of contemporary variations in the story and that he is choosing to canonize one version over another. But we also know there were some memorable core elements to this story that probably persisted across time and space, prompting us to wonder what exactly made those elements so memorable. So let's dive in. Last time, our story ended with Thor having suffered some pretty serious humiliations at the hand of a magic-wielding Jotun named Utgar the Loki, one of which being that he had found himself entirely unable to lift a cat off the ground. Before vanishing from sight in an effort to avoid being killed by Thor's deadly hammer strike, Utgar the Loki had confessed that this impossibly heavy and limber cat was not actually a cat, but instead was the famous world serpent, also known as Jormungandr, who spans the full length of the sea encircling the earth and who Thor is fated to battle at the end of the world. He had only appeared as a cat through illusory magic. And although Utgard the Loki then disappeared and Thor had no way of finding him, 
Snorri tells us that Thor was itching to get some revenge for being humiliated, and he did have a pretty good idea of how he might be able to get back at Jormungandr, and so their feud begins. From here, we're going to adopt a multiverse model of Norse mythology, just for fun, and pretend that there is a prose Edda universe and a poetic Edda universe, wherein this story is happening in two different ways at the same time. To be clear, a multiverse is not how the Norse people conceived of their mythology, but it's a good way for us in modern times to compare and contrast the different ways in which this story goes down. In Snorri's prose universe, Thor is hankering for vengeance. After arriving home, he hangs around only for a very short time and then sets out on another journey. In fact, he sets out so hastily that he doesn't bother to bring along his chariots, his goats, or any form of companionship. Instead, we have a description of what I believe is our one and only instance of Thor shape-shifting, as he takes on the appearance of a young boy and sets out traveling across Midgarther until one evening he arrives at the home of a Jotun named Hymir, where he stays the night as a guest. At dawn, Hymir gets up and starts preparing to go fishing. Young-looking Thor gets out of bed and asks if he can join Hymir on his expedition, but Hymir hesitates to let him come because he doesn't see the benefit in bringing along someone who was, quote, small and just a youth, end quote. In fact, he tells Thor it'll probably be too cold for him if they row out as far as Hymir is used to going. Thor gets frustrated at this and considers just smashing Hymir with his hammer then and there. But instead, he decides to keep up the ruse for now and replies that Hymir doesn't need to worry about rowing out as far as he wants because it's more likely to be that Hymir is the one who won't be able to handle it and will need to come back first. He asks what they should use for bait and Hymir replies that Thor should go find his own bait. Meanwhile, over in the poetic universe, specifically in the poem Hymiskvida, the gods have just finished up a very successful hunt and decide that they ought to have a feast, but aren't sure where it should be held. For whatever reason, this is apparently the kind of thing that can't be decided without magic, so they, quote, shook the twigs and looked at the augury, end quote. We don't have any surviving details from the Norse corpus explaining how this particular divining practice works, but it appears to have roots in some very old traditions. In Voluspa 60, after Ragnarok is over, we are told that the god Hunir will choose a wooden slip for prophecy, which sounds like it could be related. And both of these quick mentions sound like they could potentially be related to something Tacitus wrote hundreds of years earlier about Proto-Germanic Europeans. Quote, to the use of lots and auguries, they are addicted beyond all other nations. Their method of divination by lots is exceedingly simple. From a tree which bears fruit, they cut a twig and divide it into two small pieces. These they distinguish by so many several marks and throw them at random and without order upon a white garment. Then the priest of the community, if for the public the lots are consulted, or the father of a family, if about a private concern, after he has solemnly invoked the gods with eyes lifted up to heaven, takes up every piece thrice, and, having done thus, forms a judgment according to the marks before made." End quote. It's tempting to think of these marks as runes, but to be clear, we are never told that these marks are actually runes. They may be, or they may not be. This, of course, is a third-party description of a practice going on hundreds of years before the Viking Age among non-Scandinavian Germanic people. But assuming there's some accuracy to it, it is very likely that the ancestors of the Norse, living a bit further north at the time, 
would have been doing something similar, given that a similar-sounding practice does show up here and there in our sources. But however this ritual is supposed to work in Himiskvida, the decision is made that a feast should be held at the hall of a Jotun named Agir, who is described here as a mountain dweller. So Thor pays a visit to Agir, and flatly tells him that from now on, he's going to be responsible for preparing feasts for the Asir, quote, often. Larrington suggests that this might be a reflection of Scandinavian royal practices in which the king enforces his authority on his subordinates by visiting their homes and demanding to be feasted. Agir's relationship with the Asir is interesting in that he apparently falls under the category of a Jotun, although he is married to a woman named Ron, who is listed by Snorri as a goddess. The two of them have nine daughters that serve as a personification of the waves in the sea. And Snorri tells us that Ron owns a net that she uses to catch people who drown at sea and is thus responsible for their deaths. Her name in Old Norse means robbery. John Lindau often writes about the social dynamic between the Asir and the Jotnar, and he typically brings up this idea that in almost all cases, Jotun women marry Asir men, but not vice versa. He describes this as women marrying up, but the marriage between Agir and Ron appears to be a pretty glaring exception to that rule, assuming these two characters have been categorized correctly. So it's a shame we don't have a surviving story explaining how that marriage came to be. Anyway, Agir is annoyed by the new feast-holding responsibility that Thor has just laid upon him, so he tries to come up with a clever way out of it. He asks Thor to find him a cauldron big enough to brew all the ale he would need in order to serve all the gods. And at first, nobody is able to locate a cauldron this big, anywhere, until Tyr, who we are told here actually has a trustworthy friendship with Thor, privately tells him that he knows a place where a good cauldron can be obtained. To the east, at the sky's end, lives a Yalton named Hymir, he says, who is my father and a brave man. He owns a cauldron a league deep. This is a little bit interesting because Snorri at one point actually tells us that Tyr is the son of Odin. But here, Tyr is telling us that he is actually the son of the Jotun Hymir. So again, as always, contradictions abound. Thor is intrigued and suggests that the two of them make a visit to Hymir's home and try to get their hands on the cauldron by trickery. For whatever reason, he doesn't think it'll be a straightforward process. Up to this point, the story in the poetic universe has been drastically different from the one in the prose universe. Rather than being motivated to visit Hymir for revenge on the serpent Jormungandr and assuming the form of a young boy, Thor instead makes the trip alongside Tyr in search of a giant cauldron for brewing ale. But at this moment, our stories converge for the sake of sharing one tiny detail before drastically diverging again. Tyr and Thor stop off at the home of someone called Egil, where they leave Thor's goats for some unstated reason, before making the rest of the journey to Hymir's hall. So in both versions, Thor is without his goats when he arrives there. When Tyr and Thor reach Hymir's hall, they are greeted by Tyr's grandmother, who we are told is very ugly and has 900 heads, as well as by Tyr's mother, who is dressed all in gold and serves them some beer. However, she instructs them to hide under the cauldrons because Hymir is stingy and grumpy. Apparently, she doesn't want him to be surprised by unexpected guests. Sometime later, Hymir returns from hunting, and when he comes in, his beard is all frozen from the weather outside. In the prose universe, we are also told that it was cold outside, but in an entirely different way. Tyr's mother greets her husband and informs him that their son Tyr has come to visit and is accompanied by Thor. 
But, she says, they're sitting over there by the cauldrons behind that pillar where you can't hurt them. To be fair, I'm injecting a little bit of my own interpretation into this scene. The actual words we have don't do a great job of explaining exactly what's going on here, but the whole thing seems to me to have a vibe where Hymir's wife is worried he's going to freak out at having these guests in his house and is trying to keep a handle on the situation. But as Hymir looks towards the pillar his wife mentioned, it suddenly bursts in two, causing eight kettles to be smashed and a cauldron to fall from a peg upon which it was secured. And from the debris, outstrides Thor, who, let's be honest, is not typically the type of person to hide from danger. I imagine him sort of like the Kool-Aid man here, dramatically entering the scene by bursting through the wall with a triumphant, oh yeah! The poet tells us that Hymir's mind doesn't speak encouragingly to him when he saw, quote, his enemy walking across the floor. And yet, the social expectations around hospitality are apparently extremely strong. Rather than getting into a fight with Thor then and there, even though Thor has just brazenly done significant damage to his home, Hymir orders three bulls to be killed and boiled up for dinner so he can serve his guests. Thor eats two of the bulls all on his own before dinner is even over, and Hymir is annoyed by this and makes the comment that the following evening the three of them are going to have to eat whatever they can hunt for themselves the next day. Thor suggests that they should go fishing in the bay, but asks what Hymir has for bait. And now our two stories converge again, as Hymir tells Thor, to go look for his own bait. It can be tempting to jump to the conclusion that Snorri might be getting this story wrong. After all, he isn't a Norse pagan himself, and is writing his version much later than Himiskvida was probably composed. But it's worth noting that at this moment in the story, when Himiskvida describes Thor venturing out into Hymir's herd of oxen to get bait, the poem refers to him as a swain which literally means a young boy, and which is not a very common word we find describing Thor throughout the sources. That's not to say that Thor is old, and Swain is sometimes used poetically to refer to young men, especially if it helps facilitate alliteration. But since Thor conceals his identity as a young boy in Snorri's version, this particular description stands out. It's possible that the poet is just using this word for poetic purposes, but assuming the origins of the story are older than both of the surviving versions, it's also possible we're detecting an echo of some details that made its way into Snorri's version, sneakily cutting through here as well. Either way, it's important to remember that different versions of a myth don't require us to make a decision about which version is right or wrong. Different versions would have been in circulation during the pagan period, and would have all been equally valid tellings of a story. But for a moment, both versions of this story stay relatively well converged. After being told to go find his own bait, Thor wanders into a field where Hymir keeps a herd of oxen. He approaches the largest ox and tears off its head. In the poetic universe, Hymir voices his displeasure at this, and then in both versions, Hymir and Thor set out to sea. Tyr seems to be sort of forgotten in Hymiskvitha here, which may be a small piece of evidence that the composer has actually merged a couple of stories together to create his narrative. But as Thor and Hymir row out to sea, events progress similarly in both versions, with a few extra minor details added by Snorri. In both cases, Thor wants to row out farther than Hymir is comfortable with, but eventually they reach Thor's intended fishing spot. Cutting back over to Snorri's prose universe, the disguised young boy Thor now places the ox head on a fishing hook and casts it overboard. 
Soon, Jormungandr discovers it and literally takes the bait. Snorri describes this moment by saying that Thor had fooled the serpent no less than Utgar the Loki had made a laughingstock of Thor when he tricked him into believing Jormungandr was a cat. But when Jormungandr feels the hook lodge itself into the roof of his mouth, he jerks away, yanking Thor's arms forward and down such that he bangs them on the ship's gunwale. Thor becomes angry at this, as he does about literally everything. He is basically thunder, after all, and he yanks with all of his might, straining his feet so hard against the floor of the ship that they break through the bottom, and he's able to then brace his feet against the seafloor. He pulls the serpent up out of the water, and Snorri tells us that if you didn't personally witness this moment, where Thor's intense gaze met the gaze of Jormungandr as his head reared out of the water spitting poison everywhere, then you don't know what it is to see a horrible sight. But Hymir sees this, and as the sea is now flowing freely in and out of his boat, he turns pale and completely panics. Just at the moment where Thor raises his hammer to smash the serpent's head, Hymir fumbles for his knife and cuts Thor's fishing line, allowing Jormungandr to drop back into the sea. But Snorri tells us, quote, Thor threw his hammer after it, and they say that he struck off its head by the seabed. But I think, in fact, the contrary is correct to report to you, that the Midgard serpent lives still and lies in the encircling sea. But Thor swung his fist and struck at Hymir's ear so that he plunged overboard and one could see the soles of his feet. But Thor waded ashore." End quote. And so ends Snorri's version in the prose universe. As I mentioned earlier, what's so fascinating about the way Snorri ends this story is that he tells us flat out that they say Thor struck off Jormungandr's head, and yet he's decided this version of events must not be correct. Presumably, that's because Snorri accepts the idea that Thor is fated to battle Jormungandr at Ragnarok. If Jormungandr is already dead, that's a pretty big plot hole, and Snorri is trying to deliver a canon that makes some kind of cohesive sense, which we've talked about before, isn't really a smart thing to do. But the implications here are enormous. For those who believed Thor had already killed the serpent, how might their ideas about Ragnarok have differed from what's in Volaspa? Exactly how common was it to believe that Jormungandr was alive and well versus dead and long gone? Snorri tells us this variance existed, at least in his day, but we're left to wonder about the rest. So let's see if we can get any clues out of the other version of this story back in the poetic universe. In Himiskvida, Thor and Hymir have just reached their fishing destination. Thor begins baiting his hook with the ox head, and as he is, quote, cunningly laying out his line, Hymir is able to catch two whales at once on the same hook. It's interesting that this poem chooses to describe Thor's actions as cunning here, in light of the fact that Snorri compares the way he deceived the serpent to the deception he suffered at the hands of Utgar the Loki. It's hard to prove that the composer also saw this story as related to Thor's misadventure in Utgarther, but for what it's worth, his description of Thor as cunning deals another serious blow to the old inexplicable cliché that Thor is all brawn and no brain. Once the ox head is in the water, Jormungandr soon bites down upon it, and Thor is able to pull the poison-gleaming serpent up on board. He readies his hammer and strikes a blow against Jormungandr's head, but the serpent doesn't immediately die from the first hit, which is admittedly a little out of the ordinary. He shrieks, and the rock bottom of the ocean echoes from the sound. All the ancient earth begins collapsing, and then the manuscript is missing a line. As it returns, the serpent sinks back into the sea. 
Is it alive? Did Thor hit it again? Has he killed it? Did Hymir cut the line like in Snorri's version? The poem unfortunately exists in pretty bad shape in the ancient manuscript, and we just can't be sure about what's missing. But whatever happened in that crucial moment, as opposed to Snorri's version, Thor doesn't kill Hymir here. Instead, Hymir is simply unhappy as the two row back to shore, and he doesn't speak a word the whole time. When they finally arrive, he gives Thor the option of either putting the boat away or carrying the whales inside. But Thor instead picks up both the boat and the whales by himself and handles taking both of them to their proper places. And still, the poet tells us, contentious Hymir continues to squabble with Thor over whether or not he's really all that strong. When they return to the house, Hymir tells Thor that unless he's able to smash a certain wine goblet, then he can't be considered strong. But this goblet is somehow nearly unbreakable. Thor smashes it through a towering stone pillar, but it remains undamaged, unlike two of the pillars in Hymir's house at this point. So now Tyr's mother, who had previously greeted Thor when he arrived with her son, sneakily gives Thor some friendly advice. Hymir's skull is harder than any goblet, she says. Smash it over his head. So Thor summons up all of his might and does exactly what's just been suggested, shattering the goblet over Hymir's incredibly hard head. But even now that Thor has succeeded in the challenge, Hymir remains skeptical of his strength. The poet never tells us that Tyr and Thor ever actually told Hymir about their desire to acquire his enormous cauldron, but Hymir now challenges their ability to lift it and see if they can carry it out of his house. Convenient, right? Tyr re-enters the poem now and makes two attempts to lift the cauldron, but both times it remains unmoved. Thor, however, takes the cauldron by the rim and braces his feet so hard against the floor that they crash right through it, exactly the way they crashed through the bottom of Hymir's boat in Snorri's version. By his incredible strength, Thor is able to lift the cauldron up onto his head and carry it out of the house. But he and Tyr don't stop running with the cauldron after they've gotten it outside. I imagine Hymir watching Thor carry it out the door and thinking something like, dang, that guy really is strong. Hey, wait, where's he going with my cauldron? And after the two friends have run some distance, Thor turns around to look back and notices that Hymir has gathered an entire army of Jotnar to join him in chasing them down. So, rather anticlimactically, but in a way that is pretty true to the poetry, Thor sets the cauldron down, picks up his hammer, and just strikes them all down with nary a detail about the fight. Classic Thor. At some point after this, he apparently retrieves his goats from Egil as well, although the poem doesn't mention it specifically. What it does say is that after they had gone a relatively short distance, one of Thor's goats collapses from exhaustion. My guess is that it has something to do with the weight of the cauldron, but the poet explains, as we talked about in the last episode, that one of these goats was lame, having been affected by a curse that Loki had caused, and for which a Yalton had had to pay by giving up his children. Snorri clarifies for us that these children are Thjalvi and Roskva, Thor's bondservants. But eventually, Tyr and Thor make it back to Osgarther with the cauldron, and Agir, probably to his chagrin, now has to prepare feasts for the Asir every winter. One thing that always fascinates me about this poem is Tyr's relationship to the Asir versus his relationship to the Jotnar. Like many of the gods, including both Odin and Thor, Tyr has at least one Jotun parent, Hymir who he is willing to steal a cauldron from, but for whatever reason does not want the entire company of the Asir to know about this. 
If both of his parents are Yotnar, then it is highly mysterious how he ever came to be numbered among the Asir. With regard to his mother, we are never given her name, but we are told that she dresses all in gold and has, quote, shining brows. She is also called a, quote, beautiful beloved lady and is friendly to Thor from the very beginning, giving him advice on how to pull one over on her husband. Jotun women, of course, are attested as beautiful every once in a while. They're not a different species from the gods. But her friendliness towards Thor and her association with gold, in my opinion, might hint at the idea that she might actually come from the Asir clan, which, if true, is another exception to Lindau's theory that women only flow in one direction, from Jotnar to Asir in the mythology. So, which version of the story do you like better? The one where Thor disguises himself as a child and goes in search of revenge on the world serpent for having humiliated him at the home of Utgartha Loki? Or the one where he and Tyr are BFFs who make a journey to Tyr's parents' house in search of a giant cauldron? There's no way to know which version was more popular, or whether a hundred others existed, but it's worth noting that the common elements of this story were apparently wildly popular in ancient times, as there are actually a few ancient stones from various places in Northern Europe with scenes from this story carved into them. Well, technically one of them is a decorative cross from England, but you get the idea. The Hurdom Stone from Denmark, for example, which is dated from the 8th to 11th century, depicts a character that is apparently Thor holding a fishing line with his foot sticking out the bottom of a boat. Likewise, the Altuna Stone from 11th century Sweden also depicts Thor in a boat with his foot sticking out the bottom, but this depiction also puts a hammer in his hand and a sea serpent at the end of his fishing line. It's been asserted that the Swedish Ardris Stone, number 8, also depicts Thor's fishing trip, but honestly, I have trouble seeing it when I look at it. And then, as I mentioned, there's the Gosforth Cross that depicts two figures in a boat. One is holding a hammer in one hand and a fishing line in the other, with what is clearly an ox head at the end of the line, being approached by a sea serpent. The other figure in the boat is holding what looks like an axe and is presumably Hymir possibly preparing to cut the fishing line. There is no foot sticking out the bottom of the boat in this one, though. The Gosforth Cross is a fascinating monument from the 10th century, originating in a part of England that saw an influx of Norse settlers right around that time. It's carved with symbols from both Christianity and Norse mythology, illustrating the fact that these two traditions weren't always violently clashing. What's interesting to me is that two of these carvings feature Thor's foot sticking out the bottom of the boat, which is actually a feature of Snorri's version of the story that we don't get in Himiskvida. As I've said plenty of times before, Snorri really does seem to be doing his best to deliver an accurate account of mythology. But it's fantastic that we have preserved two separate versions of this story, because it helps us understand the realities of how the mythology morphed and changed over time. In these two versions, we see a few elements that are consistent and relatively the same, but we also see some really stark differences. Yet even in those differences, sometimes we might be able to detect faint echoes of commonality, as well as some repeated themes from other stories. Thor's feet go through the floor of Hymir's boat in one version, but through the floor of his house in the other. Snorri tells us Thor shapeshifts into a youth, and Himiskvida at one point refers to him with a word that means young boy. Both versions are also set in winter, and in both versions, Thor arrives at Hymir's hall without his goats. Snorri directly ties this story into events that took place at Utgartha Loki's castle, 
And although the composer of Himskvida is not so direct, it is fascinating that he does just so happen to make mention of an event that took place at the beginning of Snorri's Utgard the Loki story. We also start to see here a repeated theme where women in Jotunheimer are prone to giving Thor aid and advice for whatever reason. Tyr's mother does it here in Himskvida, and the Jotun woman Grither does it in the story where Thor kills Gerroder with an iron ingot. More amazingly, both versions of this story have managed to introduce some ambiguity around whether or not Thor actually killed Jormungandr. But of course, this is just a coincidence caused by an aging manuscript. Right? Join me next time as the events start to take a turn for the worse, and Ragnarok suddenly begins to loom heavy on the horizon. On Norse Mythology, The Unofficial Guide. Sources for this episode include Germania by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, 1st Century. Norse Mythology, A Guide to the Gods, Heroes, Rituals, and Beliefs by John Lindau, 2001. The Poetic Edda, translated by Caroline Larrington, 2014. And the Prose Edda, translated by Anthony Falks, 1995.